I want you to imagine that. You're out there on the field with all of us, not with the Packers or the Bears, whoever your team happens to be, we're out there together. And you look up in the stands and you see the people who are the most special people to you, your family, the people whose opinion about you matters to you. You see them up there? And they're cheering for you. They're glad you're here. They're glad you've set aside this weekend and you're busy scheduled to be here. What are they cheering about? Your wives, if you're married. Your parents, if they're still alive. Your children, if you have them. Your siblings, if they're alive. Your grandchildren, if you have them. What are they cheering about? I want to suggest that they're cheering, hoping that this weekend God takes you to the next level of being a God-honoring man who is the patriarch of his family, who sets the pace, who takes the bullets when it's necessary, who protects his family, who's there for them and can be counted on, who, when you get to be an old man, your wife, if you're married, will come and say, these 58 years together, it's been a privilege for me to be your wife and walk the journey with you. And your kids will bring your grandchildren and say, it's a privilege to be receiving your legacy. I wonder if you sit there like I often sit there thinking, yeah, well, the pastor doesn't know what real life is all about. He sits in his study and reads his books, and then he gets up there and bumps his gum for 30 minutes or so, and he's done. Can I tell you what I came from today? My brother is four years younger than me, and he lives in the town of Libertyville in Illinois, if you know that area, Mundelein, actually. My brother has John McCain cancer. They found the first tumor a year ago. They cut his skull, and they took out that tumor. And within six months, there was a second tumor. And they've given the same operation, only this time they said to my brother, would you be willing to be part of a clinical trial that we're just beginning? You seem to be a really good candidate. What does that mean? We need you to be a laboratory mouse. We, we need to experiment. It's the only way that we doctors learn with things like uncurable cancer. So when we take this second tumor out, we're going to put in a virus. We're going to make you sick. And then every two weeks, we want to pump into you some stuff that's going to try to excite the white blood cells in your body to go and fight that virus. What are the side effects? Nobody knows. Nobody's ever done it before. What would you say? Now, my brother's wife, after 30-some years of marriage, died of cancer five years ago. Two years ago, he married a woman at age 60 who'd never been married before. Can you imagine? She thought she was marrying a healthy man. I spent three hours with them this morning, having flown in last night. He couldn't stay awake. It was 9.15 when I arrived at his home, and he was already exhausted. I don't know that he'll make it to Thanksgiving. So when you asked us, my brother, to write something on the paper, guess what's on my paper? 
That's one of three things. So we're here tonight, my friends, every one of us dealing with real stuff. Would you agree with that? So you see what I wrote in my notes for you? Now, they're really tiny in this book, so I don't know how you're going to read it. But mine are a little bit bigger. But I I don't know what Brad or whoever did it was thinking, but you must have better eyes than me, I can tell you that. But here's what I wrote for tonight. In a time of weak or untrustworthy or failing leadership, what type of man is needed to help anchor society as it wanders aimlessly, desperate for reliable men who will make a difference? The people of Israel were in a time like this, in a place I'm going to take you in the Bible in a minute. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were ignorant, uh, pardon me, were intolerant of God-honoring people. God's people were mocked, persecuted, in some cases killed. Every type of wickedness and evil was being celebrated in Israel. Society was in a free fall of self-destruction. One man from a no-name town was called by God to take a stand, be counted, and he did, and it saved the nation. God is looking for such men today in America. Would you agree with that? What can we learn from Elijah's courage? 1 Kings chapter 16, if you brought your copy of God's Word, I know that's one of those books that it's going to take you half the night to find it because you never go there. I get that. 1 Kings chapter 16. Listen to what it says. Beginning, Can you see it? You got enough light? Can you see all right? And there, you got a book when you came in, right? And there's a place to take some notes. Beginning in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah... Now think about that. I'm not super good at presidential history. Can anybody tell me who was the president of the United States in 1990? Anybody know? Which Bush? 38 years. Imagine if he was still the president. This guy's been president, 30, king, 38 years. And he was a good king until the very end, and he turned sour. Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ephibal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Wow, what a time to be alive. I have a song I want you to listen to, and then we're going to dig into chapter 17. You ready up there, my friends, with that song? Fire away. So my brother says to me this morning, I don't sleep well at night. I can't turn off my mind. I'm thinking about all the things, the projects around my house that I'll never get to. The things I'm leaving undone. The stuff I was planning to do with my grandchildren 
that song. He won't leave you there. He's with you in the storm. Have you experienced that? Now, if you're looking at your notes and you're saying the words to that song didn't match the words to this song, well, that's part of what happens when you walk with Jesus. You see, I'd picked that song two months ago, but I was with my brother this morning, and that changed things. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe, who in the world ever heard of that place? It's like one of those little towns that has population 60. Said to Ahab, but that's the king. Somehow, this no-name guy from a no-name place got an audience with the king, Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word, period, in your face. And then he ran. (laughs) Now, we have no explanation what happened here, but clearly... This is a man who had an unusual relationship with God, and God was getting angry at what was going on among his people, led there by this wicked king and his queen Jezebel. So it was time for God to do something to get the people's attention. But he needed somebody, even a no-name guy from a no-name place who'd be willing to go and stand up to the king, knowing his head might be on a platter in five minutes. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, run, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You know Israel, you know that Israel is the eastern Jordan. Jordan is the eastern border. That means go on the other side into what is modern day Jordan. Foreign country where he would not be welcome. You will drink from the brook there and I, God, have ordered the ravens to feed you there. (laughs) Does God have a sense of humor or what? Have you seen those big black buzzard birds picking at the roadkill in the middle of the road? Can you imagine what he's thinking? I can understand drinking water out of a nice, beautiful, clear brook, but birds are going to bring me roadkill out of the road, and you expect me to eat that? But clearly this man has some kind of a relationship with God that He is somehow able to go beyond the, may I call it obvious, to imagine that God has something in mind here that that I don't. The question is, am I willing to trust him? So he did what the Lord had told him. And he went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. Now, I've written a number of things in your notes, and it's too dark and it's too small to see it, but you'll look at it later when you get back to your, to your place tonight. But here's a couple things that I'm asking you. How have you seen God's watch care over you in your lifetime? We sang, great is thy faithfulness. Have you experienced that? That, that God has met your need In fact, do you remember that Jesus taught his disciples, and when you're praying, understand that the Father knows what you need even before you ask him. Is that true? Have you found that to be true? So so Elijah is standing here thinking, I'm going to be hungry in a couple of hours, and you're telling me to go into modern-day Jordan where I will not be welcome and sit alongside of a creek? You know, God, that makes no sense. 
but you're God and I'm not. And since I just stood up to King Ahab and told him what for, okay. And he stayed there. And the ravens brought him, not roadkill, but bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Don't ask me to explain that. Where did they get the bread? Maybe they flew into a village where there was a baker who just put out fresh bread and it's gone. Wait. Maybe to a butcher who had just cut up some filet mignon, gone. But I don't see any complaint here. So here's my question. Have you experienced God faithfully providing for you and your family? Now, maybe it's that wonderful college education you got that you're earning a six-figure income, and praise God, God's providing for you. Maybe it's the hard sweat of your brow, and maybe it's a skill or a trade that you've learned, but do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8 where Moses said to the people, now when you get into the new land and you start building fine houses and planting wonderful, productive gardens, remember it's God who gave you the ability to do all that. And he could suck it out in a second and leave you there penniless. Part of what we're going to do this weekend, my friends, is we're going to reflect a lot on where we've been in the journey and what God has been doing uniquely and specially for each of us. Because when God looks into this room, he doesn't just see a mass of humanity. My brothers, he knows each of us better than we know ourselves. The fingerprints on the end of your fingers, where do you suppose they came from? God carefully designing when you were in your mother's womb a unique fingerprint that nobody, seven and a half billion people, has a fingerprint like yours. Think about that. Your eyes and your ears incredibly delicate and God made them just exactly the way he wanted for you. And Psalm 139 says, as you know, and every day ordained for me has been written in your book before even one of them came to be. Did God know my brother would have McCain cancer in 2018? Absolutely yes. Could he have prevented it? Well, of course. He has allowed it. Have you learned, my friends, that we don't learn very many lessons sitting on the chaise lounge on the beach sipping pina coladas? where we learn the powerful life lessons that we can pass on to our kids that our kids will really value when they face the tough stuff is in the storm. Do you agree with that? Now, none of us want storms. And when we see the storm starting to brew on on the shoreline out there, oh, God, send it away. But it's in the storms that our kids and our grandkids are watching carefully so that they understand how to face the storm. Am I right? So my brother and I sit there this morning. My brother has five growing children, each now married with their own children. Ted, what's God teaching you that you are now able to pass on to your sons about facing the unwanted, unexpected diagnosis and you can't do squat one thing about it but weather the storm with the power of God? Sometime later, the brook dried up. (laughs) Can't you just see it? It didn't just happen. It hasn't rained in weeks. Every morning, Elijah's looking, and the water line is getting lower and lower. You're noticing this, right, God? 
you know I need water. Not, not just every day, every few hours. Sometime later, the brook dried up. Have you ever been there where to the best of your ability, you're following the direction that you believe God is leading you in life and you lost your job? Or you got that medical diagnosis? Or your wife says, I want out? Or the police call, are you the parent of? And you say, God, this isn't fair. I've been doing what you asked me to do. And the brook dried up. Where is the fairness in that? At age 53, my mother was diagnosed with kidney cancer. I was 32. The doctor said, uh, we don't know why God makes us with two kidneys. You only need one. As far as we can tell, the kidneys is just, uh, there's only one kidney that's cancerous. We'll go in, we'll get it out, and you'll live fine on the other one. Okay. So, surgery. Fifteen minutes later, the doctor comes out. It's everywhere. There's nothing we can do. Six months later, she's gone. God, dad and mom were missionaries in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It's not fair. God, ever been there? Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Get up. Go at once to the town of Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. <laughs> what? Sidon? That's the hometown of Queen Jezebel. Y you want me to leave a dried up brook and go to Jezebel's hometown and I've just stared down her husband, King Ahab? God, we're going from the frying pan into the fire. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Does God already know everything that's going to happen next week, next month, the rest of 2018 in our nation, in our world, and in each of our lives? Will there be anything that surprises him? Now, we need to hold on to that, brothers, because you're exactly right. Nothing catches God by surprise. Nothing. If anything ever does, he's not God. So when the storm comes, God, you saw it coming even before I knew anything about it. So help me weather it by your strength and your power. And God's response is, I am with you in the storm. I could have pushed it aside. I could have stopped it. I've let it come so that you will grow in it so you will have yet more of a story to tell to your family and your friends about the power of God in the storms. Now, we have a choice at that point, brothers, to say, but it isn't fair. Or, okay, God, Grow me in the storm because I want to pass on to my children and my grandchildren a legacy of lessons learned because the storms they face will probably be even more complex and more severe than the ones that I'm facing. Have you seen the decline, the deterioration of our world in the last 30 years? 
Do, do you agree that the challenges, the moral challenges, the ethical challenges, my gracious, if they can't even figure out what kind of bathrooms to have in school, boys, girls, and whoever you want to be today, what kind of challenges are our grandkids going to be facing? And what's going to happen to them if they stand up and say, principle, it's wrong. If you can't figure out if you're a boy or a girl, pull down your pants and take a look. God did that. It's wrong. And they'll throw them in jail. They don't record these messages, do they? <laughs> but but do you, you see the downward decline, right? You see what's happening. That's why, my, my friends, I believe that part of what God is doing is God is saying to our generations, and there's at least two generations in this room, will you be willing to let me walk through the storms of life with you so that you can teach your children and your grandchildren because the storms they're going to face 30 years from now will make this look like a kindergarten playground. I love to travel internationally, especially in the hard places. May I tell you what pastors in places like China and India have been saying for some time? We're afraid the church in America will collapse when the persecution comes. Why do you say that, pastor? Because Christians in America don't know what suffering is. We've lived with it for generations, the Mao years, the Boxer Rebellion, 1900. We understand what it's like to watch somebody hold a gun at our wife's head and say, deny Jesus or die. We don't think the American church will be able to stand. Because you gather in beautiful buildings with wonderful sound systems and beautiful highly paid staff and you walk out and have a wonderful big meal and watch football all afternoon, we're not sure the American church can stand when the pressure comes. And I've responded, I think we might surprise you because there's a fiber, especially in the American men. You don't see it often, but it's there. And when the pressure comes, I believe all across this nation, there will be men who will stand and defend their families and teach their sons and their grandsons. That's part of what I think God wants to do in these next two days, my brothers, so that when we leave here on Sunday, we are different men because we have met with God. Because our nation needs different kinds of men. Can you believe what's happening in Washington the last week or two as they beat up that judge and his two daughters watch it? So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and asked, Would you please bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And by the way, I haven't had lunch. Bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. I don't know how she knew he was a man of God. Maybe that's the way she addressed every man. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering these few sticks to take home and make a meal for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Wow. 
Where is the place in your life journey, my friends, that you would define as despair? Has there ever been a place that you would define it as living hell? Probably in a room of this size, there are many of you who have been to that desperate. Can you imagine a widow, hopeless? We don't know how old the son is. Let's pick an age, eight. And she's been squeezing that little bit of flour and oil as long as she can, and finally, she's out getting the last few sticks. And as she makes that last little biscuit, what is she going to say to her little boy? Eat it well, son. It's the last time you'll eat. In these days, as you know, there is no Medicare, Social Security. Nobody cares about a widow or a widow's little son. They're on their own. Where is God at times like that? Neither the woman nor Elijah knew that God was right there and he had orchestrated the strategic rendezvous between these two people at that moment because he was about to do something that would blow their minds. Look, don't be afraid, Elijah said. Don't you love that when God says that? It could be that some of you, as you were thinking of coming here, were thinking, there's a lot better things I got to do with my weekend than this. Don't be afraid. God's been planning for these couple days for a long time. (laughs) What he has in store for you and me will amaze us. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Wow. When you and your family face really difficult stuff, the checkbook doesn't match the bills. The doctors report, what are we going to do? The police call in the middle of the night. My brothers, Are you able to speak to your family on behalf of God and say, this is what God says. Let's read it for ourselves because God promises he's with us in this. Honestly now, or are you like most men in our nation? Where's my cell phone? Who on my speed dial can I call? This weekend, God wants to call you and me to step up a couple notches, to be men who can say to our families in storms, this is what the Lord says. Not just because we read it once, not because we heard it in a message last Sunday, but because God has spoken into our hearts in the time that we were in the word. So she went away and she did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her son. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Can't you just see it? She makes his little loaf every morning, turning the jar of flour empty, knocking it out on the counter, putting it back, and as soon as they're done eating, the little boy runs over. Mom, I saw you empty it up, but look, there's more in there. Where does that come from? 
Mom, I saw you empty out the last drop of the oil, but look. What's happening there? Yes, it's a wonderful miracle. There's a little boy in training. Now, we don't know whatever ends up with that little boy when he becomes an adult and a dad, but don't you suppose as an adult he's telling that story over and over and over and over to his kids when they're not so sure there's going to be groceries tomorrow morning. Now, what I just said to you doesn't probably make much. What do you mean no groceries in the morning? I grew up as a missionary kid in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti, rural Haiti. I've been in those mud huts, grass roofs, where there isn't a bean in the house. And the last little cup of coffee and the last little piece of bread is the last anybody is going to eat because dad doesn't have a job unless somehow groceries show up at the door. And in that kind of a place, when a child gets sick, there's nothing else to do because there isn't a doctor within 100 miles except God. Here's my little baby. Help me. When you grow up in that kind of a place, it changes you. It shapes you. When you grow up around men of faith like that, who aren't afraid when it's the last biscuit, because God is God, and he knows our need better than we do. Sometime later, verse 17, the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. Do you see what's happening here? God is growing Elijah's faith and the woman's faith. First it was the brook and ravens and bread and and water, and then the brook dried up. Then it was the widow and, and flour and oil, but just enough for one day, every day at a time. Now the little boy dies. Have you noticed in life, my dear brothers, life builds one on another, one experience on another, one year on another, so that as we learn the lessons from last year, they help us this year, so that every single storm we face, we're learning lessons, we're growing stronger because there's a bigger storm coming. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Don't you love the fact that the Bible is honest? She didn't say, oh, really too bad, but I'm a godly woman, and and I know God is sovereign, and everything's going to be okay. No. Life hurts. And God says, and I see it all through the Bible, when life hurts, I'm big enough to hear your cry. I want you to be able to express what you're really feeling. Be honest with me because I want to meet you there and help you there. Give me your son, Elijah says. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. And he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? A prophet saying, God, I don't understand. You're God, I'm not, I don't understand, but this doesn't seem right. But I trust you, and I'm here asking for a miracle. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times, cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him, and he lived, and Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house and gave him to his mother and said, Look, Your son is alive. 
My wife and I are part of a church plant in Florida. About three months ago, a man in his early 70s, after the morning service, is driving his wife to lunch, and he slumps over at the wheel as he's driving and crosses three lanes of traffic, not hitting anybody, and the car comes to rest, and she reaches over and slaps him, dials 911. He was stone cold dead. It took six minutes for the EMTs to get there. They paddled him and did all kinds of things, and they got his heart beating again. I mean, we rallied the people to pray. Six minutes. What God has done in Charlie Hasselbeck's life is unbelievable. He's 95% back with us. Just a very slight lapse in his short-term memory. He's a walking Lazarus. Two months later, we mow our own grass around this church. Here's a 70-year-old guy who loves mowing one of these zero-turn mowers with his floppy hat going, and it was 95 degrees in the shade. And he should have known better. But at the end of about three hours, I mean, the sweat's pouring off of him, and he's not looking so good. And we called the ambulance, and he had the widow maker. 95% blockage in both arteries. He was that close. Two weeks later, Another dear couple in our church, the lady has a heart, feeling like she's having a heart attack. Her husband runs to the ER. They check her out. Yup, gave her a nitro pill, airlifted her to the hospital. In the helicopter, her heart stops, flatline. They paddle her, bring her back. Three people in a month and a half who either died or stared death in the face and God's brought them all back. Don't you suppose that's impacted our little church? And I'm telling you what, brothers, we have rallied around, so it doesn't take much. we got this prayer chain that in about five minutes, you can get about 30 people praying. And I said to the people, don't sign up for the prayer chain unless you're willing to get a text at 3 a.m. and you're on your knees right now. Because God is a God who hears and answers prayer. Do you believe that? Then the woman said, last verse, <clears throat> Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. If you died tonight, what would be your legacy? When the people gather, and they will, at the funeral home, wherever it's going to be for you, what are they going to be talking about? You've been to those places. We've all been there. You talk about what a good person he was and on and on. And occasionally, somebody courageous will say, you're lying and you know it. It was a jerk. <laughs> so what will they say about us? Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. What would you like your children and your grandchildren to say about you? Your coworkers, your friends. Wouldn't that be about the ultimate? He was a man of God. And when he spoke... His words were truth. They were the kind of truth that we needed at a time in our nation where we're floundering morally. What do you think? Isn't that what's needed in our country? More than anything else, don't we need men 
who can be the kinds of husbands that their wives will say, I'm proud to be known as your wife. Children on the playground, is your dad? Wow. It must be fun and wonderful to be the son or the daughter of that man. I grew up in Haiti, I told you. My father was a builder. He built the churches and the schools and the hospitals. 25 years later, my wife and I felt the call of God to go back. I became a hospital administrator and helped to plant a church. Can you imagine, guys, what it was like for me when I'd go to a town and somebody would say, your boss Anderson's son? Come see the church. Your dad built that building. Come worship with us on Sunday. Come see the orphanage. Your dad built that. They're coming behind us, our kids and our grandkids. And either they're going to walk through life, please don't ask me about my parents, or let me tell you about my dad. Let me tell you about my dad. He was a man of God. And when he spoke, he spoke God's truth. And put your hand on the shoulder of the guy next to you. And let's pray that God would do a work in that man's life while our band comes and closes our time. God, we thank you for the privilege of being together this weekend. We are asking God in this place that you would do whatever work you need to do to help every one of us become men of God who speak the truth and who stand up in a country that is floundering morally. God, I'm asking that you'd look deeply into each of our hearts and you'd help each of us to know what's there that you don't like. What's the work you want to do this weekend, God, to help us become the men we would really like to be? The men you designed us to be. If you're courageous enough invite God to do that work tonight and tomorrow so that when we leave here Sunday there's not one of us in this room that's the same guy that came here tonight let's worship Jesus